Welcome for a webinar at the U.S. Studies Center on the discussion of trade tensions and economic coercion. What is next for the U.S.-China-Australia relationship? My name is Charles Edel, and I'm a senior fellow here at the U.S. Studies Center at the University of Sydney. Before I begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia and recognize their continuing connection to the land, water, and culture. The University of Sydney stands on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respect to their elders past present and emerging. Thank you all of you uh, for joining us for such an incredibly timely and hopefully quite useful discussion on economic coercion. Now, over the past month, the question of what has been going on between Australia and China is the first and sometimes the only question dominating the media cycle here in Australia. For those of you not across the details, in late April, the Chinese ambassador to Australia stated in an interview that, quote, the Chinese people are frustrated, dismayed, and disappointed with Australia and what it's doing, and suggested that Chinese tourists and Chinese students may have second thoughts about traveling to, quote, such a country that is not so friendly to China. Now, although these comments came in response to Australia's call for an independent investigation into the source of the coronavirus pandemic, these type of threats are not new. Moreover, they were followed by moves to limit China's imports of Australian beef, barley, and possibly coal. Australia is not alone in having its exports threatened by the Chinese government. Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, the Philippines, Norway, and others have all had their trade with China disrupted after making political decisions that angered Beijing. Late last year, China's ambassador to Denmark threatened a free trade agreement if they refused to sign a 5G contract with Huawei. In Germany, China's ambassador stated that if Germany decided to, quote, exclude Huawei, this will have consequences. You sell a million cars per year in China. We may also declare them unsafe. Earlier this year, the Chinese embassy in Prague warned the Czech president's office of retaliation against Czech companies if a senior lawmaker visited Taiwan, writing, quote, that Czech companies who have economic interests in China will have to pay. And just earlier this week, China Daily, which is overseen by the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda department, ran an editorial with the headline, UK will pay price if it carries out decision to exclude Huawei from its 5G network. So much for the subtlety. Now, prominent Australian commentators have observed that Beijing's actions have revealed the true nature of the Chinese government. And there's been much discussion about why China is targeting Australia in this way. But the examples I just laid out should underscore the point that Australia is not alone in facing coercive economic pressure from China, even if the suddenness and intensity of Beijing's recent actions have caught many by surprise. Keeping the conversation focused on just what's happening in Australia misses the broader context of what China is doing globally and how increasing pressure on Australia fits into and draws from that playbook. Moreover, by staying focused only what Australia should or should not do, the conversation is missing a great opportunity to draw on how other countries are responding and what has been effective. Now, the intent of this webinar is to broaden the conversation to understand the pattern of Chinese behavior around the world and the tools which have been effective and those of which have been counterproductive in responding. To explore these questions, I'm thrilled to welcome you all to a discussion featuring my U.S. Studies Center colleague, John Lee, and the authors of a new report, A New Arsenal for Competition, Coercive Measures in the U.S.-China Relationship, Liz Rosenberg, Ashley Fang, and Peter Harrell of the Center for New American Security in Washington, D.C. It's hard to think of a better group of folks to discuss this important and quite timely subject. Uh, before we get going, I'm going to give you a brief bio so you know who you're going to be listening to. Liz Rosenberg is a senior fellow and director of the Energy, Economics, and Security Program at the Center for New American Security. In that capacity, she publishes and speaks on the national security and foreign policy implications of the use of sanctions and economic statecraft, as well as energy market shifts. From 2009 to 2013, Liz served as senior advisor to the U.S. Department of Treasury, to the Assistant Tra Secretary for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes, and then to the Undersecretary for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. Ashley Fang is a research associate uh, for the Energy, Economics, and Security Program at CNAS. Her research focus includes U.S.-China trade re uh, relations, China's economic policies, and China's global economic footprint. 
Her work and commentary have appeared in NPR, CNBC, Foreign Policy, Fortune, Scientific America, and The National Interest. Peter Harrell is an adjunct senior fellow at CNES, where he focuses on the intersection of economics and national security. From 2012 to 2014, Peter served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Counter Threat Finance and Sanctions in the State Department's Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs. In that role, he was instrumental in developing the international sanctions against Iran, Russia, and Syria, and easing these, uh, the use of US sanctions against Myanmar. Finally, my colleague, Dr. John Lee, is a senior fellow at the US Studies Center. He is also a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute in Washington, DC. From 2016 to 2018, he was a senior advisor to the Australian Foreign Minister, Julie Bishop. He's the author of numerous studies and reports, including the recently published US Study Center report, US-China Economic Distancing in the Era of Great Power, Rivalry, and COVID-19, and together with me, the future of US-Australian alliance in an era of great power competition. Now, before we begin, a couple of quick administrative matters. We'll have each of our panelists speak about their work, defining what course of diplomacy is, explaining how China's arsenal of course of economic tools is expanding, discussing the evolution of the US policy response, and explaining what this all means to and for Australia. After each of our panelists lay out their initial thoughts, we'll have a conversation among the panelists before opening it up to all of you and your questions. I promise I'll do my best to get through as many of those questions as possible, and I would like to ask all of you watching, if you decide to type a question in, please limit your question uh, on commentary so that I can make sure that I can read through this while I'm listening to everyone else as well. Uh, so first, let me turn it over uh, to Liz for an overview of their project, what it was trying to track, how you went about the research, and maybe first off, a definition of economic coercion. Thanks, Liz. Thanks very much uh, for that kind introduction and for the opportunity to participate with all of you um, for this conversation today. This is indeed about a, a topic that we have um, been keenly interested in for a number of years now and have been very eager to talk about, not just with um, Americans, <clears throat> who we work with so closely on a daily basis, of course. Um, we are based in Washington. Um, but with people uh, elsewhere in the world who have also been observing the phenomenon that you uh, that you spoke about, Charlie, at the beginning, and um, uh, as it affects them at home, um, as it affects partners and allies of theirs, and in trying to understand how, for example, a strategic competition between the United States and China will influence the choices, <coughs> leverage and opportunities for countries all over the world. Uh, so I have spoken about this with Australian diplomats and experts, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation today for being able to talk about this with you all. So um, with that said, um, let me begin by offering to you the working definition we have for economic coercion. <clears throat> Recognizing that different people have used variations on this and a um, rich discussion is useful um, for trying to get at uh, what it means and why it's significant. So um, we have called economic coercion <clears throat> restrictions on trade, investment, and financial flows to impose economic costs on a target um, in pursuit of a strategic objective to try and influence a foreign government, a group, an individual to offer policy concessions or to um, specifically to shape their um, political choices. <clears throat> their policy options. And um, we first started with that working definition uh, several years ago when we uh, wrote a report on Chinese economic coercion. And in it, we did a number of case studies. We reviewed a number of case studies. In fact, some that you've just mentioned, Charlie, uh, in your opening. Um, and, um, and actually, I think towards the end of our drafting, we wanted to pull in some information related to Australia, which hadn't previously been as prominent as it became in our, in the, over the course of our research then. In the last couple of years, we have seen um, increasing instances of Chinese economic coercion, and, including uh, severity, intensity, um, a dialing up of the rhetoric and the threats. Again, you were getting at that in your introduction and watched that, um, that suite of economic coercive tools expand in the United States by the United States government. And uh, for both countries, 
Um, this has been an evolutionary process. Um, the points of economic leverage that, they're, that they both have are different. So the suite of instruments available to each country is different, but um, it has been an incredibly dynamic area. And because of this increasing use, um, because of confusion that we've observed by observers and indeed the targets of this economic coercion, we wanted to take another big crack at this. This is the genesis of our report um, to do a kind of cataloging of what the instruments of economic coercion are and, um, and make a comment on the effectiveness. And part of the reason for this is to um, explain to people, um, if you will, a kind of um, proportionality or uh, make a comment on severity, um, uh, who the target set uh, appears to be or what the objectives, the changing objectives are, the sort of expanding scope of national security uh, being the underlying objective for both China and the United States and how they deploy these. And over the last couple of years, we've also been watching how China and the United States have used these instruments more toward one another and changing the character of the bilateral competition, which has clear and sometimes very material impacts on a huge range of other countries, partners, allies. So Peter and Ashley, um, are both going to talk a little bit more about what some of these, um, the modalities and the instruments of coercion, economic coercion are that we were cataloging in this report. So I'm not going to go too much into that. <clears throat> I will just also offer a point on the methodology that we used for this report. It was our um, pleasure and a great opportunity to talk to um, government experts, independent experts, academics in Australia, um, in Europe, um, elsewhere in Asia through uh, travel and structured interviews, through meetings that we held. And uh, in many instances, they were really eye-opening to us about the um, the level of uh, threat that many US allies uh, feel um, from not just China, which we were uh, prepared for and had been thinking of in our research, but uh, to also hear a number of them articulate the um, even parallel uh, threat or risk that they have felt from the United States. Uh, and here I'm, I'm still talking about you know, allies and partners, treaty allies of the United States. And so um, it became yet another reason for us to want to dig in really deeply on this topic uh, in order to try and inform um, uh, as a primary audience for this U.S. policymakers and influential thinkers to the U.S. policymaking process about what the impacts are of uh, this set of, this use of the set of economic coercive instruments by China and the United States in order to try and guide where the United States may go with its use of these tools and in thinking about resiliency and working with partners and allies in um, meeting um, and uh, dealing with uh, Chinese use of coercive economic measures. Um, it seemed like a timely project when we started. It felt more and more and more so all the way along and we are continuing with um, follow-on research project now that also feels incredibly timely, particularly just in the, pen, the events of this past week or this past 24-hour news cycle for us. So let me stop there with this introduction, and I'm happy to talk about any uh, portion of that in the discussion later. Perfect. Thanks, Liz. Uh, you've given us an awful lot of even just to kick things off, and I really do hope that we can dig into not only, as you said, the catalog of new tools that have come online, but also which ones have proved more effective or less effective. Uh, but Ashley, I'd like to go to you next as the lead author on the section of the report about Chinese economic coercion. And I was hoping you might be able to walk us through uh, how Beijing thinks about the subject. Now, what, if anything, has been changing in the Chinese government's approach over the recent past? Uh, why do they even use these tools in the first place? And what should we expect uh, moving forward? Thanks, Ashley. Thanks so much for having me on, Charlie. So I'm gonna take your second question first, which is where does coercive economic measures kind of fit into China's larger toolkit? So as Song Guoyu, who is a scholar that's affiliated with the Ministry of Commerce uh, in China put it, coercive economic measures are the best option between subtle diplomacy and all out war. So this makes it one of the most valuable tools in, the, in China's toolkit and in the CCP's toolkit. So there has been a change in use of China's economic statecraft, otherwise known as Jinji Zhao, over the past couple of decades. So you started in 1978 with Deng Xiaoping and the going out strategy. 
In the 90s, he then moved to which is improving political relations through economic cooperation. And then you kind of get to where we are now, in which China has become much more aggressive, especially over the past few years, in its use, of course, of economic measures. It's increased in its frequency of deployment of these measures and has also become a lot less subtle. So course of economic measures in Chinese is Jinjin Tefa, and they see it as a tool that large countries use. So as China has becoming a much larger country on the, on the global stage, this also, the idea of using course of economic measures also becomes, to them, it seems more natural. When they say big countries like to use course of economic measures, they're usually referring to the United States. But as they become one of these big countries, it's also natural that China also sees themselves as being able to use these tools as well. So over the past couple of years, we've seen both an expanding in expansion in the objectives, as well as the tools that China has been has been trying to use to achieve its national security and foreign policy goals. So in expanding objectives, we have the expansion of economic advantages. So for example, domestically, China recently passed a domestic foreign investment law in which it said that it wanted to harmonize a domestic foreign, a foreign investment into China along with economic security. And you also see an uptick in, uh, you see an uptick in uh, economic espionage, especially cyber economic espionage from Chinese actors for the necessary high tech tools that they want. Secondly, you see uh, China responding to infringement on territorial integrity. And you've seen this especially over the past couple of years with Hong Kong and Taiwan. So when the Hong Kong protests broke out and you had individual foreign companies that were based in Hong Kong, employees who were posting on their own personal social media, expressing support for the Hong Kong protesters, China essentially pressured some large financial institutions there to take measures to make sure that they weren't actually expressing support for these protesters in the first place. And as the issue of Taiwan also gets a lot more hotly contested over the, over the past couple of months, you're also seeing this. Um, you had, uh, to take an example from the Asia Pacific region, uh, you saw an Air New Zealand plane taking off and trying to land in China but because there was a there was a um, something in the crew manifest that had that didn't that basically said that it didn't that China Taiwan was not part of China, they then had that airplane turn back around and land back in in New Zealand. Thirdly, you have you see China uh, taking a more aggressive approach to defend its own national champions. So you use the example of Huawei, and Huawei isn't just an isolated incident in Europe, in the United States, but also in Australia as well. And that kind of gets to the fourth expansion in its objectives, which is targeting U.S. alliances and allies, as Liz was talking about. So you see China increasingly also attack U.S. allies and partners, such as Canada, for actions that the United States is taking against China. But because China doesn't want to directly retaliate against the United States, they take it out against allies and partners. And this is kind of where third countries get caught up in this also escalating competition between the United States and China. Finally, on, on the expansion of tools that, that China has been codifying over the past couple of years, so Liz talked about some of the previous tools that China has been using, such as import and export restrictions, popular boycotts, investment restrictions, pressure on specific companies, restrictions on Chinese tourism and students, as well as targeted financial measures. China is also crafting new tools and modalities within its own legal and regulatory system. So primarily against the United States, you've seen tariffs become this key tool that China has also used over the past couple of years. Although ironically, as China has been increasing pressure on the tariff side against the United States, it's also been lowering its tariff barriers towards the rest of the world. You also saw the development of the corporate social credit system, as well as the unreliable entities list. You also see China using law enforcement uh, more regularly, such as the Civil Aviation Association of China. That's actually become um, a really interesting case study to see how China has deployed the CAAC to enforce a lot of its hardline, its hardline policies against Taiwan. And finally, you see the removal of foreign products. And this kind of gets to this larger question of decoupling, in which China has now also decided that all, go all government uh, computers must not con contain any foreign hardware within, within any, any government buildings. So where do we see China going over the next couple of years? I think we've seen, and we are gonna continue seeing an increasingly emboldened China. Uh, and the lack of coordinated response against China from the United States and allies such as Australia and along with the trend of China becoming increasingly aggressive in general, as Xi Jinping has come to power, all of this will just lead China be to become even more emboldened and even more aggressive in the next few years. Now,
Uh, terrific. Thanks, Ashley. Uh, lots, again, to chew on there. You went through a ton of stuff. I, I would just note two things uh, which we're going to return to. So I'm flagging this for you and the rest of the panelists. One, it, it's interesting that you laid out uh, when we hear about decoupling, uh, we always hear about the U.S. possibly decoupling or diversifying away from China. What Ashley's laid out, which is, I think, really uh, helpful, is that it was an internal Chinese decision to decouple itself in certain sectors from the U.S. economy that preceded that. Uh, the second thing, just from a strategic point of view, uh, Ashley, you had noted uh, the, the expanding use of tools and the expanding set of objectives. And this is what we call a chicken and an egg problem. Uh, which precedes which? Do your objectives grow when you have more resources? Or once you have more resources, do you have the ability to pursue things that you couldn't previously? Uh, I'm flagging that because we're gonna come back to that. But in the meantime, uh, let's flip it over fully to the US side. And Peter, love to get your thoughts on the American policy response. How has the US responded? What's new and different? What's been effective? What's been counterproductive? And what methods are perhaps unclear as of now in their effectiveness? It's too early to tell. Let me turn it over to you for some of those. Yeah, thank you, Charlie. Um, I appreciate you having me uh, having me join the panel, um, and thanks to all of you uh, attending the panel. Um, I was actually mostly going to talk about some of the U.S. measures, coercive economic measures that the U.S. has deployed uh, against China. Obviously, a particularly hot topic today as we get into the uh, decertification of Hong Kong uh, under uh, U.S. Uh, law. Um, as separate uh, from China, and we can talk some about what that what that means. But I think before talking briefly about U.S. coercive economic measures against uh, China, um, I'd like to actually more narrowly answer your question about the U.S. response to China's uh, use of coercive economic uh, measures um, against both the United States uh, and allies. And I think on that narrow question of how has the U.S. responded to China's use of coercive economic measures over the last couple of years, uh, you've really seen a pretty um, haphazard uh, response out of the current administration in Washington. So to give one example that directly affected U.S. Uh, companies, if you may recall about a year and a half, two years ago, um, China began insisting that airlines serving the Chinese mainland market stop identifying uh, uh, Taiwan as a separate country on uh, their websites um, uh, for selling uh, selling tickets, and uh, the U.S. criticized that policy, kind of at uh, you know an upper level, but not at a secretarial, you know, cabinet level or presidential uh, level. So you saw some rhetorical uh, opposition, but nothing uh, really um, concrete. And at the end of the day, even the U.S. airlines caved uh, to China uh, on that. Uh, more recently, you know, something that caught a lot of attention uh, in the U.S. when um, China uh, suspended broadcasts of certain U.S. basketball games in China because of a, uh, an event in which a, a prominent um, a basketball team manager uh, spoke out against uh, Chinese uh, repression. They suspended NBA games, uh, broadcast of NBA games in China. Uh, there was a lot of, of kind of public angst in the U.S. about that, um, but uh, not a lot of concrete action uh, out of the U.S. government. And I think that actually, frankly, has been typical of what we've seen of the U.S. response to Chinese economic coercion, uh, where the responses to date have been pretty haphazard, uh, irregular, and I, 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 I um, hate to say somewhat ineffective uh, at deterring future Chinese coercion. And I think, frankly, that's one reason why we are seeing uh, China engaging in more and more economic coercion of its own. It's not sensing a very uh, tough degree of resolve out of other major uh, powers uh, today. So let me bracket that and um, offer a couple of minutes on uh, the kind of primary thing I wanted to talk about, which is the growing use of U.S. economic coercion against China, where we have seen quite a lot of work uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, and as we have seen from the Chinese side, both an increase in the uh, volume and type of measures deployed against China, and also an increase in the policy goals these measures are uh, intended uh, to serve. And in our report, we publish a lengthy chart that identifies 16 or 18 different kinds of U.S. course of economic measures that have in recent years been deployed against China. And I'm not going to go through them uh, exhaustively. 
but I break down a couple of the major categories. Uh, you know, the first of these being obviously uh, the Trump administration tariffs on China. The Trump administration has imposed uh, 20% tariffs on about three-fourths of U.S. imports uh, from uh, China. Uh, some $370 billion a year of, uh, of imports subject to these tariffs. Very significant change uh, from what we saw uh, in the past and, and a policy that the Trump administration is pursuing largely uh, to try to achieve uh, economic concessions uh, out of China. Uh, we are also seeing a uh, very significant increase in the U.S. use of export controls against China. Uh, this has taken the form of both targeted measures against individual Chinese firms like Huawei. Um, the U.S., starting about a year ago, uh, began restricting the export of U.S. products to Huawei. It's imposed similar uh, restrictions on a whole host of uh, other Chinese companies uh, over the last uh, last year. And it has also taken the form of broader kind of product-based uh, controls, where the U.S. is increasingly limiting the export of certain high-tech products to China uh, generally. Um, sort of the flip side of the export controls uh, is something that in the U.S. is called CFIUS, which is a national security review of Chinese investment uh, in the U.S. It's been subject to much more stringent um, uh, uh, scrutiny uh, over the last couple of years than it was prior to that. And as a result, you've seen Chinese investment in the U.S. fall by maybe 70 percent uh, year on year uh, over the last uh, couple of years. Um, uh, we are also seeing increasingly more and more direct limits on imports of certain products uh, where U.S. officials see a national security risk. Telecommunications, Huawei-made uh, products, uh, probably uh, the most uh, prominent of these. The U.S., like Australia and a number of other countries, has banned the use of Huawei uh, equipment and telecommunications networks for national security. Uh, concerns, but we're seeing more and more of this. Um, for example, a couple of uh, back at the beginning of May, a couple of weeks ago, the U.S. banned the import of various Chinese uh, electrical power grid management uh, devices, uh, largely out of national uh, security uh, concerns. And I think we're going to see uh, more and uh, more and more of that. And then finally, we're seeing more in the way of sanctions. Uh, a tool that has become very popular by U.S. policymakers across a whole range of issues over the last 15 uh, years, uh, but that frankly wasn't deployed against China very much uh, until um, just the last couple of years. We are now seeing, um, you know, use of. Uh, I actually should say on the sanctions front is still more in the threat than in the implementation, but we are seeing the threat of sanctions. Uh, around uh, Chinese human rights abuses, including both uh, in Xinjiang uh, province and in Hong Kong, uh, as well as, again, the threat of sanctions around Chinese activities in the South China Sea and a host of other cyber espionage and sort of e economic and industrial espionage, a whole host of, uh, of areas. And again, those have mostly been threats to date, although I frankly expect, particularly with the recent action um, uh, by China with respect to Hong Kong and the decertification of Hong Kong, I think we'll probably see some targeted sanctions against Chinese officials, if not in the coming days, at least within the next couple of weeks. So we can come back uh, more to what this Hong Kong action means uh, in the q and I'll leave it there. Great. Thanks very much, uh, Peter. Uh, you know, uh, for Australian viewers who aren't as uh, familiar with the CFIUS regime, in the United States, uh, Australia has its own uh, regime. It's the FERB regime here, the Foreign Investment Review Board that has rethought, uh, even in the last month and a half during the coronavirus pandemic, uh, what level of scrutiny it wants to give to foreign investment screening at this point as more companies go into distressed state. Um, but uh, I don't want to talk too much about Australia because I've got the wrong accent. Uh, so I'd like to hand it over to my colleague uh, John, uh, with the hope that you could walk us through what this all means for Australia, for the Australian government, for the business community, for consumers, uh, what is Australia worried about uh, in terms of what both China and the U.S. are doing, uh, and what actions is it taking now as opposed to other actions that it might be considering, either on its own or potentially even in concert with others? John. Uh, thank you, Charles. Thank, uh, great to be with my CNAS colleagues, and uh, thank you all for signing on this afternoon. Um, I spent most of my career in 
American think tanks, even though I've been based in Australia, giving gratuitous advice to the American government, as think tankers do. Um, for those of you who have visited Australia, or for the Australians, uh, it's clear that we share a lot of the same concerns about China as the Americans. Uh, but I found that when I spent my two years in uh, government, in advising the Turnbull government on many of these issues, my advice to the Australian government uh, was a little different to the advice I would have been giving the uh, people in power in Washington. And I thought in the context of the discussion today, economic coercion and so on, uh, it might be a useful uh, thing to point out why I think Australians think differently about strategy and economic coercion uh, than Americans, even if we agree substantially on the problem, which is China. Uh, to be blunt, Australia faces two very confronting realities when it comes to the US-China dynamic. One, uh, the United States is the only country China truly fears and respects. And you don't, the United States will, be, uh, will always be more important to China than any other country. Uh, the second reality we face is that we have, as we all know, great relations with the US. We are perhaps the most trusted ally in the region, if not the world. But taking on China is Washington's main game. And the United States might see Australia as part of the solution, but it's never really going to be about us. And in a minor way, we're seeing this kind of dynamic playing out right now. Um, around the same time, China slapped an 80% tariff on Australian barley exports uh, into China. The Chinese Customs Agency allowed imports of American barley for the first time. So for the United States, its eye is on making China fulfill its promises, not on the impact of Australian farmers, which is understandable. Uh, for China, its eye is on what the United, what the United States will do to it, um, and uh, it is smaller economies like Australia, China knows, will simply not take coercive actions against the Chinese unless in the most extreme uh, uh, circumstances. And for China, if they can play the US off against its allies, as they're trying to do with the Bali issue uh, to some degree, then of course Beijing is more happy, uh, is more than happy to do so. So, the summary is Australia doesn't want to be a passive bystander in all this because we know there are a lot of important principles and practicalities uh, at stake. But at the same time, we have to uh, be realistic about um, the fact that we have very little capacity to shape the way things will actually end up. Uh, so which this means that for Australia, um, you know, if we do things like call for an international inquiry into COVID-19, which we were one of the first, if not the first to do, it's then not about retaliating against China, it's about playing defence against anything that the Chinese might do to us. And as I mentioned, only in the most extreme circumstance would Australia contemplate uh, playing offence when it comes to economic coercion against the Chinese. Now, with respect to collective coercive action, uh, with the United States or any other countries. Uh, let me suggest a couple of ways that our American friends could alleviate some of our anxieties, given what I've raised um, uh, just, just now. Now, as a general rule, I think those willing to take on the risk of collective action uh, and putting ourselves in harm's way with respect to China ought to share in the benefits. Uh, otherwise, the incentive for a country like Australia would be to make ourselves as small a target as possible and remain on the sidelines. Uh, the US-China phase one deal is essentially a G2, or group of two bilateral agreement, which alleviates some American concerns rather than allied concerns. Uh, the reason why the Australians were so wholeheartedly uh, supportive of the Trans-Pacific Partnership was because that gave us real equity in the outcome. Uh, of trying to define a rules sort of road in terms of greater access to the US market. Uh, you know, we have to remember that if the United States is only selling broad principle, while China is offering guaranteed benefits, 
uh, the reality is that China will win more often than not. Uh, this brings me to a second point, which is related, and that smaller countries like Australia need to know the in intended institutional landing point or outcome if they are to support any uh, coercive or countering actions against the Chinese because institutions give power uh, to rules and they lock in gains uh, for, for smaller countries. So for example, with the whole WTO dispute, Australia is large in agreement with a lot of American grievances, but we need to know what is the institutional outcome? Is it to compel China to reinterpret WTO obligations better? Is it to uh, uh, create a parallel institution to WTO rate regimes uh, of which Australia could benefit from? Um, the point I'm making is that smaller countries like Australia, they cannot afford to play a never ending game of chicken with large powers like China. They cannot even really afford to play a game of poker with China when we don't even know what the prize might be or whether there's even a prize at the end of the game. Uh, we need that information, that institutional outcome for us to do a proper risk benefit analysis of collective action. Uh, the final point I'll make before getting to Q&A, um, you know, to alleviate some of our concerns when it comes to coercive action against the Chinese, where possible, the United States should try to use coercive tools which have minimal or no market or price distorting effects. Uh, and there are coercive tools that tick that box. Uh, if there are market or price distorting effects, uh, then it's almost certain uh, that China's trading partners, of which we're a significant one, will suffer unintended uh, consequences. So I, I put across a few sort of general principles about how to make us feel better about all of this. Um, and I'll uh, leave it now to you, Charles, to uh, fire some questions at us. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you guys uh, for a very rich um, <clears throat> set of opening comments where I think we could zoom in at, uh, almost any number of 500 different directions. Uh, so let me just start off by asking a, a question or two to each panelist before we go out to the audience um, with the caveat uh, that because there's been so much thrown out here, uh, Liz, Ashley, John, Peter, uh, if you just want to respond to any of the comments that you've heard from your fellow panelists, please feel free to take the conversation where you see fit. But um, Liz, um, you rolled this out, uh, you rolled this report, the second of two, Peter's already told us it will be the second of three, um, about a month ago. Uh, I, I imagine just given the case studies uh, that you had appear in this, even if many of the policy recommendations are calibrated towards Washington's ear, uh, that you've had uh, a fair amount of interest overseas, uh, not just from Australia, but elsewhere. I, I'd be really curious to hear what the reception, what the reaction has been to this report from uh, foreign partners, allies, uh, and others. Uh, thanks so much for that question. Um, actually, if I may, I'll answer your question and also respond to the comments that John just made, which I found really interesting. and. Um, they speak directly to part three of three uh, of this research that um, uh, Peter mentioned that we're um, kicking off now, um, offering some strategic concepts to the United States uh, for how it should use its tools of economic coercion. Um, because we had the distinct sense when we were um, writing the project proposal that the United States was aggressive in its use of these tactics without a lot of strategy so sort of flying blind, but nevertheless using them quite actively, which just this week feels like the biggest understatement, <laughs> um, you know, sort of what's going on here. Um, not a lot of clear definition. John, you were talking about the value and understanding, um, you know, what the, the, um, what the clear outcome would be for a number of allies or partners to the United States in order for them to want to engage with the United States, even if the US government was of a mind to be more multilateral in its approach or minilateral in its approach, right? Um, but there's not a lot of definition going on in the United States of what the end state is, or rather, um, there are a number of different definitions in the United States of what the desired end state ought to be, just, just with regard to the US-China economic competition, which makes it particularly difficult to um, collectively for the US government articulate a particular goal 
then which to bring to um, a small batch of U.S. partners in order to discuss what um, cooperation or a complementary action could be, including, for example, with regard to that the barley tariff example that you're specifically talking about. That's a great example, and there are unfortunately lots um, that could fall into this sort of like push and pull by China to try and um, uh, apply friction to the relationship the United States, that sort of tenuous, already tenuous relationship that the United States has with many allies and partners. So. Um, this is just to say that I think actually we've just had a very interesting piece of feedback in John's comments from other people abroad to the uh, report. Um, but to generalize uh, a bit more broadly, um, we've had um, a lot of a lot of interest along the way um, by fellow travelers, people who are uh, in Europe, in um, Northeast and Southeast Asia, also in Australia, elsewhere. Um, uh, keen to observe um, uh, as an analytical matter and also just as an immediate matter for policy, so for policymakers, um, what's going, what China, how China is engaging economically and politically with them, so its economic coercion. So um, a really strong interest and response, particularly from Germany amongst Europeans. Um, there's, uh, we've already touched on directly and indirectly some of the reasons why that's front and center for Germans. Um, also, um, in the UK, um, uh, this sort of has like a Huawei veneer, but it's actually about a lot more than that. Um, Huawei 5G veneer, but it's about more than that. Um, in Northeast and Southeast Asia, um, we've had a lot of interest, and I think there. Um, not surprisingly to us, we hear the most um, um, sort of stark reminders to us as um, Americans, at least this, speaking from my experience, that um, there's not a lot of luxury to admire the problem and there are very constrained choices um, because China in the near abroad has an enormous amount of influence on uh, by direct um, economic and political relationships with countries in elsewhere in Asia. Um, and while uh, Australia, um, Singapore, Japan, South Korea, just for example, have strong relationships with the United States, they nevertheless feel um, strong themes of abandonment and concern about where the United States is going. So this, has, this report has been of interest, but I can't say that um, I've heard notes of reassurance. <laughs> no one is expressing to us that they feel reassured um, be, uh, because of the laydown we've offered about the nature of this economic coercion and its intensification and its increasing significance to this bilateral relationship. It's sort of going in the wrong direction for many of the people we've talked to um, uh, in all around Asia and in, in Europe who are keenly uh, observing as well. Uh, thanks, Liz. Um, over to uh, Ashley, and I'm going to do my best to uh, begin to work in some questions uh, from the audience. Uh, and your audience are doing a great job making the questions pretty succinct here. Uh, this one goes uh, specifically to Ashley, at least to start it. Um, this comes from uh, Michael Wadley, and he was curious to hear your take on how coordinated do you actually think uh, China's use of the tools and levers that they're pulling are? Or is this just such a big system uh, that these are not as coordinated as they might appear, particularly if you're looking for those? And let me go a little bit broader even than that question, Ashley, which is if we look at what's happening to Australia, um, how does that fit within what China is doing globally? Is this an anomalous case? Is this right in line? Are there new tools that they're trying out here? And then, you know, again, sorry, I'm lumping too many questions your way, but I think a real critical question here is when you analyze this from a Chinese perspective, what is proving effective on Beijing's read of the use of their tools? Uh, which should we expect to see more of and which have maybe had less effect than they had intended in the first place? Ashley, take on any of those. 
Yeah, sure. So the first question on coordination, I'm just going to start off with the CCP is very opaque and I don't claim to be somebody who like studies the intricacies of the CCP. Um, and so I think I'm going to answer that question by not directly answering the question by saying that even if it's not coordinated, we aren't seeing any efforts from the central government to actually dissuade to, to dissuade these actions, right? So like even if they aren't coordinated, they are in the end advancing Beijing's objective of creating kind of this environment of strategic ambiguity where if you step out of line, um, if you don't preemptively censor yourself to things that they find sensitive, then you might face some of these actions. So I think I would uh, turn the question around a little bit. On your second question on uh, the effectiveness of tools of uh, versus Australia versus the rest of the world, um, I don't think Australia is an isolated case. Um, I think what you see in Australia in which they're targeting specific sectors is echo throughout the rest of the world, right? So here they went after wine, they went after beef, they had barley as well. In Germany, their top ex one of their top experts is automobiles. Um, in so like this is this is a pattern that I think that you see a lot. I think where you might see a little bit of differentiation between Australia and the Asia Pacific region and the rest of the world is when it comes to students and tourism and the amount and the numbers because the amount of people that travel abroad to these to all these different locations gives Beijing um, different weight when they pull the levers on some of those tools. And then your last question on effectiveness. Do you mind repeating that one again? Not at all. The the question is. Uh, from Beijing's standpoint, as much as you can, uh, while not having the direct line to Xi Jinping, uh, which of the tools that they've been using have proven most effective and therefore should we expect more of, and which have maybe proved counterproductive to their ends? So I think all the tools, all the tools themselves have pro proven effective, but I think like the most useful tool which is not an economic tool, it's more of an information tool, is Beijing's use of its own propaganda system, in which the threat of the deployment of some of these tools have actually amplified the effects. So Beijing can threaten to pull the lever, but they don't actually have to do it. And because of, the, because of their propaganda machine, both domestically and abroad, they're able to amplify this message in ways that other um, diplomatic messages from other countries might not necessarily be able to. Great, thanks, Ashley. Very succinct uh, answers. Uh, Peter, um, let me kind of go broad and then get narrow and again, hand it off to you about where you want to go. Uh, so the broad part is for those of you who are watching who haven't yet had the time to read this excellent report and we'll flash it up on the screen at the end, highly recommend everyone goes not only to CNAS's webpage, but our webpage as well. Uh, what the team that you're watching right now uh, laid out was a series of three different types of recommendations. Uh, things that the U.S. can do on its own, uh, things that the U.S. can do in multilateral institutions and with uh, allies, um, and then also um, things that the American private sector can do. Uh, and again, I, I'd just be curious to hear a little bit of the methods. Uh, why did you break it up in that way? Uh, that's pretty obvious, I think, but maybe you can tell us some of the top lines there. And I'm noting, I'm just going to, uh, Kevin Cheney uh, asked a particular question here about the private sector, uh, which is with the use of the sanctions and denials by the Department of Commerce against Chinese businesses, is that actually hurting the U.S. businesses more than they're hurting Chinese businesses? So broad and narrow for you, Peter. All right, can you hear me now? Thanks. Um, so, so thanks, Charlie. Um, I actually want to begin by picking up on the recommendations around uh, allies, which also uh, will let me bring in uh, or react to some of um, some of John's, I thought, very interesting and very thoughtful uh, comments. And I have to say, I, sh I should begin by saying, when I talk about recommendations to the United States about engaging allies and partners. Um, I wish I had a positive message about what will happen, but I think the reality is, um, you know, the Trump administration has not and is not going to prioritize uh, the interests of allies uh, and partners of the United States. I mean, I think that President Trump, uh, you know, himself um, sincerely believes his uh, America first uh, rhetoric. Um, and I also think, and you see this kind of across the board, whereas past presidents going back to um, at least um, 
uh, Truman uh, have really thought about using trade agreements to strengthen allied partnerships for strategic ends. Uh, I mean, Truman, for example, um, you know, in, in the early days of negotiating the GATT, I mean, Charles, you'll appreciate this as a historian, actually overruled his own trade advisors and took a weaker, from the U.S. perspective, a, a, a worse deal on the economics because he really wanted to strengthen strategic alliance with uh, the United Kingdom and, and the other GATT partners. That's just not Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump is America first. He sees uh, trade agreements, frankly, uh, as ways that he can extract rents from our allies and partners for the U.S. security guarantee. You see that with Japan. You see that with South Korea. I'm not saying this is a good thing. I personally think it is a terrible thing. Um, but I think we need to be honest and should be frank about, you know, the Trump administration's approach to allies and partners, which I think is, is just very different from what we've seen uh, in the past. That said, uh, you know, as we wrote in the report, if um, we are going to respond effectively to China's economic coercion, the United States clearly needs to adopt a different approach uh, that is more uh, oriented um, uh, towards uh, allies and partners. And some of this is for, for kind of obvious uh, obvious reasons. You know, if you think about U.S. export controls, for example, U.S. rarely has a monopoly on technology. Maybe in certain areas it has a monopoly on technology, but in many areas it doesn't uh, have a monopoly on technology. It's competing with firms from South Korea and Israel and, you know, the Netherlands and the rest. And fundamentally, the export controls just won't be that effective if you don't have uh, an approach that's joined by allies and partners. And that kind of brings me to the final point, which is a direct answer to the question about Huawei and, and, and ZTE. You know, the U.S. imposed export controls on uh, Huawei uh, pretty much exactly a year ago, maybe uh, like 54 weeks ago in early May uh, of last year. Uh, the export controls have clearly had some impact on Huawei. Its growth outside of its Chinese home market basically stabilized. Uh, you know, 0% growth for Huawei in Europe, uh, very small growth in Asia, ex-China, uh, but had very strong growth in China and overall saw a 29% increase in revenues in 2019 compared to 2018. So I think, you know, not something that was all that effective. And in part, that's because China, uh, Huawei was able to continue sourcing chips from a variety of international companies, Taiwan, Taiwan Japan, and the like. The Trump administration is now trying to turn that off. Uh, I think as the Trump administration realizes that it needs to get at, you actually want to have effective pressure here, you actually do need to get uh, allied and partner uh, nations uh, on board uh, just to have uh, some uh, effective impact there. So, so I think I'll, I'll leave it there. Uh, great. Um, uh, no questions. John, you just get to respond to everything that's now been spit uh, your way here. And I note too that in the Q&A that we're getting online, uh, as you might imagine, there's a ton of questions coming uh, through, uh, and we'll probably let John be first off the bat here on this, about what is the appropriate stance uh, of the Australian government to take? Uh, you've outlined some of the concerns, but uh, other than accepting a passive approach to this uh, and a defensive reaction, as you have laid out, uh, what are some of the things uh, that the Australian government maybe is doing for our listeners, but other things that they might want to be considering as well? Well, I suppose you can play offense, which doesn't directly um, poke China in the eye or only pokes China softly in the eye. And what I mean by that is um, diversification is the obvious one. I mean, you have quite, ex quite the extraordinary situation now where the Australian government is now urging Australian businesses effectively to diversify away from China. That essentially just means take away any or reduce the leverage that China has over us. Uh, it's not necessarily an offensive strategy, depending how you define offense and defense, but it's something that we can do which gives us more room to move on, on the strategic areas uh, without suffering the economic consequences. Um, so diversification really is, is um, the thing that we're actually doing right now. There's, there's a much more sophisticated conversation now about supply chains moving out of China. That conversation is not as advanced in Australia as other countries because our trade with China is far more simplistic in many ways. It's buying, um, it's selling uh, services or selling commodities, which is quite a, quite a straightforward transaction. It's not really about sort of making stuff in China and making stuff in 10 other 
which you know has parts from ten other countries, like like United States, for example. I just want to make one point about um, economic coercion and what's been effective for the Chinese. It seems to me that the number one um, uh, offering the Chinese give. Well, I'll compare the United States and China. The United States says, if you join us, we will uphold a rules-based order, we'll repair the rules-based order for everyone. That makes competition fairer. Uh, it makes everyone uh, compete according to a, in, in a level playing field, right? Which appeals to the higher side of our principles. The Chinese proposition is very different. It's if you do what we want, we give you this guaranteed short-term immediate gain. You know, it's not about whether the right to compete. We actually give you an immediate tangible gain. On the other hand, if you don't do what we want, we take away that guaranteed immediate tangible gain. For me, that's what makes Chinese coercion so effective. Whereas for the United States, asking other countries to bear costs for a principle with an unclear gain for that particular country, that's a very difficult proposition to sell. So I don't have the answer. But that, that's, that's the sort of dynamic um, that I think the uh, United States and allies have to get over. And, and by the way, um, it's, it's one reason why I think Southeast Asia is so susceptible to Chinese coercion, because they want guaranteed gains and they fear guaranteed losses. Uh, and that's why China has been so successful. Um, I, I'm noting that we're kind of beginning to wind down the hour. I'm also noting that your conversation has hit many of the questions that have come in. And I'm also noting that the amount of interest popping up in this uh, would keep everyone on for another hour or two. Uh, but finally, I'll note that it's also way past bedtime for some in Washington. So I'm just flagging that we're not going to hit all the questions. One group of questions, though, that I would like to hit, because we've gotten uh, a slew of questions all around a similar topic, is, and uh, Freya Zemek at the Australian Department of Industry had asked this one, uh, but there are several others, uh, Winston Mock, Tony Cox, who also had asked this question too. Are, are concerns that a US trade agreement might come at the expense of Australian economic interests justified? Now, I know we've been kind of playing with that question about coordination, about a scattershot approach, uh, but I'm hoping when we talk about trade one and the elusive maybe to happen, maybe to never happen phase two, if any of you uh, panelists wanted to take that question on directly. Uh, Charles, I'll jump in very quickly and then and hand it off to, to anyone else. Um, I think the main concern Australia has about uh, uh, phase one or potential phase two is that when there is a an agreement between the United States and China to purchase a specific quantity of exports that is higher than what would normally occur. Uh, this runs the risk of effectively being an off-market purchase by the Chinese of American exports, right? Because it's in a sense, it's an unnatural um, or non-market-based purchase. And if that occurs, then the, the risk of prices and markets being distorted um, in sectors that would that Australia operates in is uh, is, is potentially high. So that, that's why barley is quite a concern. Um, the risk is also heightened because in the current COVID-19 period, uh, domestic consumption in China is not as robust as it might otherwise be. So you've got a smaller or, you know, not as large a consumption market um, that, that you would normally expect from the Chinese. And if you're substituting additional US imports into the Chinese market, then that stands to reason that potentially um, narrows the space that Australian exporters can um, operate in. So it really depends on what these additional purchases will be. You know, 200 billion that's been agreed, 200 billion extra, really depends on what those purchases will be and whether they're effectively off-market distorting purchases. Um, I'm going to pause the response because I'm watching the time and I'd like to ask a final question. And this goes uh, directly to the CNAS team in Washington, D.C. first. And please feel free to respond to anything that's come before as well. So this comes from uh, Joanna Chu, who's a journalist in Canada. Uh, and she asks, um, or states rather, that Beijing is furious today uh, about the Canadian court's decision to reject uh, Huawei CFO uh, Meng's defense team's argument for her release. 
so her extradition hearing will continue. Uh, she also notes that Canadians uh, Michael Kovig and Michael Spavor have been in detention for over 18 months in China. Her question here, besides economic retaliation, do the panelists think China will turn to other measures like arresting more foreign nationals in China or more aggressive actions such as pushing foreign companies and their employees outside of China? Sorry, punishing uh, foreign uh, companies outside of China. Let me uh, turn that over to CNAS uh, if you guys want to answer that one first. Sure, so um, I can I can take a first stab at it. I think that, you know, besides detaining foreign nationals, another, something else that China could do is exit bans. So you've had, um, you've seen China mainly deploy this against uh, descendants or or family of those who have been who who have escaped abroad and China wants back. So I think exit bans could also be something else um, that can be done here. And then on the second part, we're on more aggressive actions such as pushing foreign companies and their employees out of China. Um, I think that would depend very much on the company and what sector it is in, in itself. China is still dependent on certain foreign companies operating within China. I'm thinking especially of the high tech sector here. So they might target some companies in more vulnerable sectors. Uh, Peter or Liz, would you like to weigh in on that one? Sure. Um, so I give, um, I actually give China uh, a fair amount of credit in how they develop their economic coercion. They've clearly learned across cases and they've been pretty savvy when they have taken coercive economic measures in um, doing them in ways that minimize collateral adverse impacts and maximize their own gains. So like when they've kicked companies out of China, They've usually kicked companies out of China where there's a pretty clear domestic competitor. You know, it's like retail, right? They kicked a South Korean uh, retail chain uh, out, of, uh, out of China. But there are lots of Chinese retail chains that could come in to pick up the pieces. They, there's actually notes they've been very, very careful about uh, kicking out high-tech companies where they actually want the technology, you know, being developed uh, in, in, in China. And I have to give them a certain amount of grudging uh, credit for some of the uh, some of the actions they've taken there. So I think that um, I think that 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 if we do see them take more measures on detentions or that kind of thing, I, I think they will do so in a way uh, that will be kind of moderated uh, by their desire to avoid uh, collateral uh, costs. Which brings me to my final point, sort of related to this question. One thing that's been very interesting on the overall Chinese use of coercive economic measures, they treat the United States differently, right? This whole uh, Meng Huawei uh, issue or the whole Meng issue is really a U.S. issue, but she's been arrested in Canada pursuant to a U.S. extradition request, and Canada's gotten all the economic retaliation, not the United States, and that's been fairly true across the board. China's been much, much more aggressive in deploying kind of direct coercive economic measures against U.S. allies uh, and against sort of third countries that has been against the United States, which I think again reflects its assessment that so far it still needs the United States economically to a high degree, and it isn't quite yet ready um, to take the kinds of really aggressive measures on the U.S. that you've seen against you know countries like Australia, Canada, South Korea, and some of the rest of them. Uh, Liz, let me hand it over to you uh, for a kind of concluding thoughts uh, before we wrap things up. Um, I, 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 I really appreciated what Peter and Ashley um, had to say. I don't have much more to say um, uh, uh, beyond that, except um, one final thought that uh, was also in my head I'll just offer. Um, we we have observed um, in the research that we've done that there's, um, China has also been fairly disciplined in responding in domain, um, which so which goes along the lines of uh, what Peter was just saying about um, based on uh, in the China, rather Canada has borne the brunt of the Chinese retaliation, um, which is sort of indirectly actually targeting the United States. So um, the in-domain, you know, China has targeted Canada here. Um, uh, also, you know, the in response to feeling pressure against Huawei, uh, China has thought narrowly about responding 
in the tech sector um, specifically. And whereas in the United States, in the strategic community, there's a very robust conversation about gray zone warfare or multi-domain conflict and a thought about how um, you know, responses uh, can be across the domain, China seems relatively more disciplined. So to the degree we're looking at additional response, um, it may be likely that we'll see it within domain, which is to say, for unfortunately for Canada, targeting Canada uh, further um, and then uh, sticking to the same general economic sphere. Right. Um, I, I do wish that we had another hour, but I, I don't. I want to let you guys go to have a drink and go to sleep. Um, this is a robust conversation. I really recommend to everyone who's watching to make sure that you uh, read the full report that they've put out. You can download right off their website, as well as John's report on uh, what uh, divergence, what decoupling, um, uh, what diversification looks like uh, at this point. Uh, before closing, though, uh, in addition to thanking the panelists for giving their time and really thoughtful comments here, let me make sure to thank the entire team at the U.S. Study Center who works very hard to make sure that all of this goes off without a hitch. Uh, Janine and Mara, Suze, uh, Mari and Taylor, uh, thank you. You make everything very easy for us, uh, so really appreciate it. Uh, also want to note that uh, the next webinar that we'll be hosting for the U.S. Study Center will be on Wednesday, the 3rd of June, on coronavirus and protest, how COVID-19 has changed the face of American activism. Finally, please uh, visit the US Studies website for upcoming events, publications, videos, and podcasts. And again, one more uh, round of virtual applause, I guess, to our panelists for such thoughtful comments today. Thank you all and good afternoon or good evening, depending on where you are.